All right. It's Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. Uh, last week, the world's 50 best restaurants list came out. And about a minute and 23 seconds after the list was announced, the article started pouring in about how the list is broken, about how it's too Eurocentric, almost exclusively male, uh, and comprised of restaurants that are mostly testing menu only and um, well above what you might consider an affordable price point. So is the list fixable? Is it worth fixing? We called Christine Malky, a BA contributor, uh, who was actually at the event announcing the list last week in Bilbao, Spain. Uh, and we also got in Julia Kramer, our deputy editor who oversees restaurant coverage for Bon Appetit uh, and had a bit of a roundtable. Asked a lot of questions. I think we had a couple of good ideas on how to sort of improve the list if it, if it is improvable. Oh yeah, one thing. There are a few curse words sprinkled throughout this episode. Uh, so if you're listening to someone sensitive to that, maybe youngsters, uh, you know, do earmuffs uh, and help you forgive us. All right, let's do this. Here is Christine, Julia, and I. So, Christine, you were in Bilbao, Spain a few weeks ago at the World's 50 Best Restaurants event. What was the, What was that like? Um, comparisons to the Academy Awards are accurate. <laughs> really? <laughs> How so? I like, all right, this sounds good. <laughs> a lot of step and repeat, or for me, trip and repeat, because I was just trying to get out of everyone's way. You know, really high production. Uh, the cities put a lot into it. And on stage, it was very James Bond. I mean, there's a lot of high tech stuff going on. Men in tuxedos, women in gowns. There are a lot of blowouts, you know. Wow. So it's it, full on. It is fully full on. You know, the list started, I want to say, in 2002, I believe, was the first list. Sounds right. What is What was your sense about uh, sort of when it ascended to this more sort of high-gloss, big production value event? I mean, considering that the first one was conceived of in a pub that didn't even serve food. <laughs> I, I'm going to say around 2010, I remember going to an event, a lunch for it at Per Se, and um, realizing, you know, the power that it had. And then, I mean, really in the last, I would say, seven years, it's been huge. Yeah. It's, I mean, I guess it's somewhat comparable stateside to the James Beard Foundation Awards in the sense that like, the James Beard Awards have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger over yes. the years also in terms of production value, social media, all of that. Sure. But in terms of moving the needle for restaurants, I mean, nothing can compare to 50 Best. Moving the money needle. Well, absolutely. Julia, what are your thoughts on that? As someone who sort of monitors the restaurant world, who is somewhat, you might call yourself a critic. I don't know if you call yourself a critic, but how do you perceive the 50? I think it speaks to a very different audience than the Beard Awards. I mean, the Beard Awards are very American. They're very um, sort of hometown. They're, you know, divided by region. You have places that are really sort of embedded in their communities. The 50 best I feel is more geared toward a distinct group of people who travel the world looking to eat at restaurants to check off the 50 best list right they're called gastronauts gastronauts yes also known as quote-unquote total foodies um (laughs) and and you will you will know that within the minute of meeting many of them yes so right, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. I think one thing that you talked about that, Julie, about the 50 best list, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that the people who go to these restaurants want to say a lot of, that they went to the 50 best restaurants. So they go to those restaurants. So then those restaurants end up being on the list next year. Well, the, but, I mean, it depends on those people because they're, they're dependent on voters and regional judges. 
meaning meaning chair what? people. Yes. Um, so each I think it's divided into something like twenty eight regions around the world. Anyway, and each region has something like thirty six voters, and then there's a chairperson who wrangles the voters. And so each voter has to um, they have to check off a box on online voting, and of course this is now monitored by Deloitte, so it has to be yeah. has to be good <laughs> um, that they have in fact eaten at that restaurant within the last eighteen months. And each voter gets to choose seven restaurants. Yeah, and there's some question about how much can you travel, how many restaurants can you actually go to personally. So, do we can get into like the how male and Eurocentric nominated this list is, or you can just get into the list itself in terms of its validity. Let's start with how male and yeah, Eurocentric. How do you separate okay. them? <laughs> okay, all right, Kramer, you're up to bat. Let's go. So I think this year there were four restaurants on the list that had a woman I think five, chef and yeah. three of those women were co-chefs with a man and last year Dominique Crenn was given the dubious award of best female chef and her restaurant was included on the list at number 83 and then and she, Dominique's chef in San Francisco yeah and then after she spoke out against the 50 best and uh, the way that they had sort of strangely segmented women into their own category and that many of their regions didn't have a single woman on the voting committee this year she didn't she wasn't included on the list at all so were people talking about that in not no and actually i actually gravitated toward the the women on this trip who i presume were judges i don't know when you say gravitated towards women meaning what people that I spoke to at events or so just chit-chatting and chit-chatting stuff. Yeah, yeah there was an amazing woman who actually launched food and wine Mexico City okay uh, Lily was really cool Lily Lopez another woman Paula from Peru and were they voters I mean you're not supposed to say oh. right I mean is there a handshake that I yeah. don't know I'm not sure um but yeah it, it I mean the whole thing felt very high five um masculine but oh. no, no one was actually speaking about Dominique Crenn, which was interesting. And were people speaking about the lack of women on the list? Oh, yeah. Everybody. I mean, it just how how could they, you know, even now when you have this chance and, and you know, they had staked a claim to want to change things and then to just almost kind of put the whole boat in reverse in some ways. It's just kind of uh, it's a head scratcher. I mean, what do you think has to happen for chefs to... I don't know, like rescind the award. I mean, what, what, how far does it have to go until this changes? I think it's great that the media is so pissed about this. And there have been really one, you know, a lot of pieces just from Jonathan Gold, Ryan Sutton, Helen Rosner, I think did something just saying this is bullshit. Yeah. And it's the numbers are right there. So it's not like you even have to, it's not an opinion. It's just, all right, here are the numbers. It's, it's right. It's in black and white in front of you. I guess the, the bigger question though, Julie, is, Let's say we agree that something should be done, something needs to be done. Well, how, how do you go about affecting change when you have this panel of sort of, I guess, as chefs, journalists, and gastronauts? Super foodies, total foodies. Yeah. So how do you affect the way they vote or the restaurants that they consider? Well, I think you have to change the people who vote. Yes. Okay. It's meaning what? So... As I mentioned, one of Dominique Crenn's objections was that so many of these committees are made up of only mm. men. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, this is something that the James Beard Award Foundation struggles with as well in terms of they made really big efforts this year to have a more diverse and inclusive list of nominees. But 
I'm actually curious, like, how much did they change the people who are on mm-hmm. the committees? And right. I, I don't know the answer to that. And I don't think that, like, real change happens until you look at that, not just who gets the nominations, but who's making the nominations. Yeah. And I think one challenge with the 50 best and a lot of awards, and I've had this problem with the Beard Foundation, is that I don't, I don't think there's anything nefarious going on, but I do think there's often a lack of transparency in terms of how these awards are judged. And I, and I remember talking to the Beard Foundation a few years ago about the journalism awards, and I was like, I'm the editor of a food magazine. I have no idea who votes on these awards. And I, I did know that you know, Christine Mulkey here and also Andrew Knowlton at, at, at our magazine had been in the industry for decades. They'd never been asked to vote. And I'm like, so mm-hmm. who are you asking? I found out not- once. Because when I was at the New York Times, we weren't allowed to submit anything yeah. uh, for competition because they felt that it was too opaque and too, you know, just especially this was sort of 2008, everything was going down. Yeah. And um, I asked them and they sent me the list and it's not, it's not exciting. No, and it's not, as, it's not <laughs> as deep or as diverse or as comprehensive as you would often like. And right. so I, I guess, and to your point, Julia, then do you say, all right, it, obviously, like if we have... A thousand voters, five hundred should be female. I mean, that seems well, pretty I, easy or obvious. Can right? I raise my hand here? Actually, in May, I went to Paris. There's this new awards thing starting called the World Restaurant Awards, and it's trying to go up against Fifty Best. One of the founders, Joe Warwick, was one of the original star- uh, men who's men who started the Fifty Best list, and he's got IMG backing him, and blah blah blah. So, because th- I went to the um, to a discussion about it, and because the French government is giving them money, they mandated that at least 50% of the judges have to be women. Okay. So it was really cool to actually go to a food event. I mean, at first it took me a minute because before they had made that announcement, I was like, wow, this feels really different. This is weird. Oh, I'm not the only woman. Yeah. <laughs> How much did that affect the the list itself, do you think? Well, the list hasn't been formed, okay. but I did get kind of mean-girled in one of the panel <laughs> discussions because I was voting for full transparency and that not only should we be transparent, you know, in terms of, of like, I think we should all pay for our meals and our flights. And then I got kind of ganged up and on. Th- and that brings some... up a whole other <laughs> issue in terms of how these restaurants are accessed. And if people want to travel the world, they often need help. And whether it's the Australian right. Tourism Board or the Which, Peruvian Tourism Board or whatever, that like, well, how are you going to get halfway around the world to eat at this Michelin three-star restaurant? Well, someone's going to help you. Well, yes, tourism boards are a huge part of this. Sponsors are a huge part of this. And I mean, we should look really toward the sponsors for a lot of this. I mean, it's interesting that Lima had six restaurants on the list. Lima. (laughs) But then people were kind of saying, oh, my goodness, can you believe it? Australia only has one or two restaurants on the list and they hosted last year. They spent millions of dollars to get people there to go to the restaurants and only one restaurant made it after all that. And Favikin's not on the list anymore. And that, you know, the Swedish Tourist Board had a huge, huge push years ago getting everyone into the middle of nowhere to go to these places. So, I mean, I think I think that the the judges and, and all of those things are definitely um, need to be shaken up and there needs to be a lot more transparency and there need to be there need to be different types of restaurants that are chosen. Um, I mean, looking back, Lauren Collins wrote an absolutely fantastic article for The New Yorker years, a couple years ago, a couple years ago that everyone should just put pause, put us on pause and go read that article. It's so great. And you know, there used to be all kinds of restaurants on the list, and now we all say that it goes towards European, prefix, super expensive. So when I was there, of course, there's a lot of rumor mongering. And <laughs> the rumor was that Ashtabari, which I still can't pronounce correct, but 
which is, you know, a Basque Asador, a grill place that had started out very humbly and has gone a little bit more toward fine dining in terms of what's set on the table, but not actually what's in your now fancy dish. Um, There was a rumor that they were going to make it number one. And that was so exciting because I went there and I was like, OMG, this is actually the world's best restaurant to me at that moment because it was honest. It was family run. It was beautiful. It was pure. There were no sauces. It was just smoke. It was like pyrotechnics and it's one man and six grills and a couple of people helping out. You know, it was not fancy. There was no theater. I didn't play a card game. And um, and I was like, yeah, that would be fucking awesome if this were the if this were the yeah. world's best restaurant and it actually was and it wasn't trying and it wasn't wooing judges and, and yeah. those kinds of things. And um, but it was number 10. I don't have two minds of this because a what the hell does that even mean the world's best restaurants like I, what bothers me about the list one of the things that bothers me is this sort of supposition of the, how it's a definitive comprehensive list um, reached by sort of almost scientific you know right. computations and this is objective and it's like dining is it's subjective yes and what your favorite restaurant might be is completely different than what mine might be yes and to suggest that this is like you know, the world golf rankings and Tiger Wood has whatever. It's just like, so I don't know. That always drives me nuts that there's this competitiveness. Like, well, we're number one and you're number seven. So we're six spots better, better than you. Right, right. Like, meaning what? Meaning what? I, I guess it can be a difference of up to 10 votes and then that can be that's. But what broken. does better even mean in terms of No, a I mean, one of the restaurants. Like you have better china than this place or better flowers? Let's, yeah, and better hand soap and better, <laughs> you know. But one of the restaurants that was in the top 10 multiple I probably met 10 people who had dined at that restaurant during this time and they were all like what what was that in a good way no there was a there was a dish of like I won't even go into it because it's but it's just it was so intellectually challenging it just completely bypassed good Mm -hmm. um and it's it's in the top 10 so in Lauren Collins's article, there was a the quote about the <laughs> the South American restaurant where there was one dish described as like Patagonian rainwater on moss, and like the description of the dishes, like you were like you didn't know whether this piece was like a send up or whether right. these were actual dishes served. Right, right. And no. it, it seems like there is a type of restaurant. There that, is a type of restaurant. I mean, if you with each slide that went up, you know, and they had kind of a teaser or when they would show the restaurant and and. There was a plate of food from that restaurant and almost to a letter, it was, you know, a dot and a squiggle and a flower. Yeah. Except for uh, Barago in in um, in Chile, which was really amazing. And it looked like, you know, a meteor that had fallen to earth and exploded. <laughs> and that excited me or Eshtabari, which is like a piece of grilled meat. And that was great. But everything else had like you know, the bloop and the gel and the flower. And I was like, I don't want to, I'm not hungry. I left that not hungry. I actually didn't eat after that event. And you know me. Yeah, no, <laughs> you, you, you've got an appetite. Kramer, what's your take on the type of restaurant or the food that's often sort of makes it on this list? I saw you looking at me when yeah. Christine mentioned the card game yeah. or something. Well, that was an 11 Madison Park reference. It was the number one restaurant in the world. Was it last year or two yeah. years ago? Yeah, last and then year. They, they closed for four months to do a bunch of work. And so that kind of set them back to the number four spot. But we'll get to them in, in a moment. Yeah, I think that that type of meal is very fun. I'm not, I'm not trying to like rain on someone's parade who really enjoys Patagonian that Patagonian rainwater? Type of, yeah, I'm not trying to <laughs> rain on the Patagonian rainwater, you know. Uh, but it's just one very specific type of dining experience. Like it is so not 
representative of the best things to eat in the world. No. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> so I, I get that experience. And when, so Kramer and I were at 11 Madison Park a few years ago together. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I missed and, that. And, <laughs> and so Will Gadara and Daniel Hume, uh, who run the restaurant, and they're great. And, and they were very intent on reaching the number one spot. And, and that is a restaurant that really puts service first and it wants it, it wants you to feel cosseted and taken care of and like you it wants you the meal to be exciting and fun but i'm also like at this point and when will came out i'm like can we do this meal in under three hours <laughs> i went there eight months pregnant and i was like dude i have to be out of here in two hours and yeah. i and i what pete's story had just come out about saying i was there forever yeah and i scooted out on that they had me literally out like 9 59 it was brilliant and as i left i passed another editor and she mouthed how did you do that, do that. We ended up being there for a while, but it was fun. I had a good time. We had a, a fun time. It is a time. good time. You have like you. It is a good time. But it's so. Anyways, my point is like reaching that number one spot. It's like, and part of me is like, why is restaurant as competition like number one? You know, tennis player in the world. It's just, it just seems absurd. But then if you look at a restaurant like Noma that reached the number one spot some years ago, like were it not for the fifty best list, Noma would not be Noma. Rene Rizepi would not be as acclaimed as he is. And Rene Rizepi is a fascinating, engaging, magnetic, sort of magical chef. Yes. And so and same with El Bouilly before that. And it's like, okay, in, in that sense, like I, I understand why a list like this can or should exist and that there is good that comes of it. I mean what's your take on that, Julia? I don't know. I just like it's very hard for me to care about this list. <laughs> just gotta be but totally out, honest. But you can't not care about it. That's the thing because I, it's such a thing. I personally cannot care about this list. In fact, I think part of the problem is us talking about the list. Well, that's oh. but that's the internet. If everyone's talking about it, then you got to talk about it too. Because if they're saying something, then and if Christine's going to Bilbao, Spain, Christine Mulkey, for Christ's sakes, I wanted to see it. Yeah, you know. Would you go again to Bilbao? To the debut of the list. No. And can I just put in a little note? So I met William Drew, who's the sort of the chief editor of, of the group. Uh, I was in Sochi, Russia, for a food event. <laughs> oh so God. I don't go to these things. I mean, just as a former Times person, you're not allowed to go on junkets. And then Adam was also really great about saying, you know, we never go on these things. And so... I met him, but I went to Russia because how can you not go to Russia in February? That's just too weird. You oh have to God. do it. And William was telling the story the other night. He said, Christine, I'm so glad you're here. I didn't think you'd come. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, well, when I invited you in Russia, and you said, I, you, Christine, you have to come to the awards in June. You said, why? <laughs> so what So what flipped for you? Why were you like, oh, okay, I want to check this out? I want to check it out because I honestly thought that they would change it. I honestly thought that they would come up to date given the pressures, not pressures, but given the incredible changes that have happened in the industry and think changes that have to happen and the spotlights, you know, yeah. around so many things, you'd think that they would react more quickly. And yeah. I wanted to be there for it. it and also, you know, the chefs, many of the chefs who are on the list are forces for good and this does help their business enormously. Like I'm a business booster and I see how this can help them open research labs and hire more people. And, you know, the people who are on this list are doing good things with their success. They're not opening casinos. They're opening fermentation labs or, you know, they're hiring hiring more local people. Um, and they're not jerks. And honestly, like, they can't survive 
without this list, some of these restaurants. But you can also argue, well, if you didn't spend so much money on card games or, you know, <laughs> China or all these things that you think are what's going to get you on the list, then you would actually be able to run a more profitable restaurant. But as we know, restaurants are not profitable businesses. So, I mean, I see your point. Like, there are a lot of people there whose restaurants have like a social justice mission, like mm-hmm. a, you know, environmental justice mission, all these things. So like, I almost could see how one of them could go up on the stage and mm-hmm. there could be sort of like a, you know, Adele moment where they're like, you know, <laughs> uh, I don't right. deserve this. Like, this mm. system is broken. I'm not accepting this award. Right. That would have been amazing. Yeah, when Massimo Batura was saying, we are the revolution, we are the change, I'm like, for for what? I mean, I think what he's been doing with the, the soup kitchens in various cities is definitely interesting and not Vegas. But yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure which revolution he was referring to. I mean, getting back to what you were saying, Julie, about changing the list, I, I do think what seemed to be effective was with the Beard Foundation last year, that there was a directive from the foundation to the voters and saying to keep in mind in, in the sort of in light of all the sexual harassment allegations that you should consider the character and quality of the chefs and restaurateurs and who they are and what they bring to the table and not just the food or the dining experience. And it, and it seemed like that did impact the results of the, of the awards this year. Do you think something similar could make sense for the 50 best? Well, it sounds to me like people are putting their eggs more in the basket of just creating other awards. As a reaction to the 50 best, the, fa- the, the, the issues they have with it. Yeah. Yes. Is that, I mean, that's what I gather from what you're saying about your trip to Paris. And I see part of that as stemming from, you know, public perception. And and Lauren really tapped into that really well about how the judges are, many of the voters are kind of bought off by these tourist boards. And it just seemed really kind of bloated and not fair and not cool. And so, yes, let's change it. But I'm just, once there's money involved and sponsors involved, like, can you really be clear and good? Yeah, it's hard. And it's hard for there to be awards of this I mean, a global awards without money and bureaucracy and all that stuff is is pretty hard to pull off. And I think what was interesting about that initial list back in 2002, and it was more, it was kind of done on a lark, and the the restaurants were far flung and some high, Mm. some low. It was almost like a list from Spy Magazine from back in the day. We're just going to (laughs) throw 50 restaurants out there. You're not going to be able to figure out how or why they got on there. Right. But like, I that's why I always like a list like Julia, like whether you do or, or or Jonathan Gold or whomever, it's. It's one person's take on something, and it's their opinion, and it sort of appeals, and you know it appeals to what their tastes are, and, and they can be all over the place, just like anyone's tastes are. It's like, right. we, not everyone goes to fancy restaurants every night, right. you know? And yet this list is just fancy restaurants. Right, right. Of a per, not In a particular type of fancy restaurant. I might be interested in the best, like, 200 to 249. Like, I want to see the cutting room floor and what didn't make it. So I went to Osteria Francescana, which is Massimo Pachori's restaurant in Modena, about five years, six years ago, maybe. I was there for a work event in Milan and uh, Condé Nast thing. And Jim Nelson is the editor of GQ. And Jim is a person who will travel for food. Yes. Uh, and he might be a voter, and we just don't yeah, know he, it. He, he should be. Uh, he definitely gets around. So he's like, do you want to go to uh, Osteria Francescana? And I was like, Sure. I mean, I guess we have a free night and like, well, how far is Modena? And like, I, I don't know, I think it's like 90 minutes away or something. And so I was like, well, I got nothing better to do. Okay. So <laughs> first of all, so we drive there and I, like Massimo, like if you meet him, he's one of those just 
he's kind of a magical person. Yeah. Uh, his wife, Laura, who's American, as warm as could be, really genuine. They're a sort of a wonderful couple to sort of run a restaurant. I, I it was not my kind of restaurant. I, I was like, okay, it's a little, it, this is not a comment on the food, it's more just the vibes, or we're not a lot of vibes, that you're kind of in these small rooms with some modern art on the wall and it's very quiet. And mm. I like something a little bit more energetic or a bit more glow or more vibes. Like that's not Francescana. Um, and, you know, I think Jim and I left there like, okay, that was interesting. Like, mm-hmm. glad we went. But I was not like, oh, my God, that's the best restaurant I've ever been to. That's the best restaurant in the world. Right, right. And, and that's not – but it's in, that's not that's not to say some people don't think so. But I just – that was my opinion that I just – it did not even occur to me. Right. So why why is there so much support for this awards among the chef community? Like, it just seemed like everyone was there. You because know? it can transform your business. Um, I mean, I – and, and – if you don't show up, they hold that against you. I remember there's a quote in Lauren's piece about Eric Repair telling Dave Chang, just go, you have to go. I mean, I think one year Eric sent, he couldn't go, so he sent Maggie Lacoze or Mandy Ozer, who was working with him, and they like called him about it. 49 of the 50 chefs were there, and the one who wasn't there was Alain Ducasse, who refuses to go ever. Even He said if he's number one, he'll never go. Because he thinks the awards are bullshit. I, I also think a big reason it's held in a scene like it is, is that every industry likes to have its awards. Mm-hmm. You know, in the magazine mm-hmm. world, you either have like the National Magazine Awards or you have the James Beard Journalism Awards. Uh, you know, obviously the Grammys, the Emmys, et cetera, et cetera. It gives everyone a chance to get together, pat themselves on the back, pat each other on the back. Running a restaurant, as we all know, is a really, really, really hard thing to do, whether you know, the, the labor involved, the profit margins, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And if you have a chance to get together with all these other chefs and right. drink and then go out and drink more and have lunch the next day, it's a moment to sort of, you know, enjoy right. yourselves. And I, I don't know. I, you can't – I don't fault them for that. That's right. something that every industry does. And I think it, And I think that aspect of it is good. Like, yeah, you guys should – take a bow, men and women. And And they bring their teams. I mean, they come with full posses so that everybody gets to celebrate together. And for these events, I mean, I, this is the first awards event that I've been to, but when I go to like uh, symposiums or, you know, those kinds of things, what happens in the sort of in-between time or the green room time can be really interesting or those offside meals. Like I've, I've watched chefs form partnerships that wouldn't have happened otherwise. You know, they weren't going to be in the same place at the same time. And, and that's sort of those those chance hap- happenings are the most interesting parts of these things to me. Do you think the list would have reflected more change this year had the organizing body who runs the awards been American? Oh, my gosh. I can't even. Yes. Just like given the sort of the Me Too enlightenment here, I think it seems like Americans are much more conscious of and aware of this, and there's much more efforts being made in this country. Something about that list seems very opposite first of class lounge in airports in Emirates, Switzerland, and, right. yeah, Emirates, and it's like I don't know if they're as tapped into what's going on in the our society as. But how can as you it not? Is. How can you not be? Maybe they're just when you're in the first class lounge, you've got your little, you know, mimosa. And you're, you're still not, you're reading not, the Times. Maybe you aren't though. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, Kramer, what do you think? I I should only hope so. Yeah. I mean, let's just say if they don't fix it next year, then huge problem. Right. Game over. And but do you, uh, to, to Kramer's point though, when will 
some chef who has, is receiving these awards actually say something. Because like you, you, you see all those photos if you, if you read Eater or whatever, and there's mm-hmm. lots of chefs looking like they're having a really good time and right. celebrating and partying yeah. and, you know, there wasn't a lot of consternation, it seemed. No. I mean, I left, honestly, I left like 25 minutes after the awards, but because um, I couldn't deal. But uh, yeah, not, no, I would say no to the, No consternation. Yeah. Kramer, any parting thoughts? How are you going to change the list? Yeah. I To me, I feel like after there was such an outcry after last year's awards that I would have said <laughs> yeah. after last year's, all right, well, if they don't fix it for next year, then right. there's going to be it. Then it's going to, you know, implode or something. And then it just happened the same way this year. So right. it's just kind of like. Mm. Right. And Dummy Kren has been extremely critical of them and and nothing reflects that. That's what's interesting. It's it's kind of Groundhog Day. It's very tone deaf. So Lauren Collins' piece in The New Yorker, Who's to Judge, uh, the pub date was November 2nd, 2015. Okay. So this was three years ago. Wow. And it's basically touching on all the exact same things we're talking about And there's a great quote there from Alan Jenkins. I think he's with the Daily Mail. He said, we know this thing has just become a a juggernaut and the brakes are a bit shit. Yeah. (laughs) Very British. (laughs) And on that note, uh, I don't know if we'll solve anything, but it was fun talking about it. Uh, Christine Malky, thanks for stopping by. Thank you. Thanks, Julia. I work here, so. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.